Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I'm so happy and grateful to have Casey Gaunt with us here today, who is an author and grief advisor. Casey retired in 2018 from 43 years of practicing corporate and real estate law in San Diego. In 1970, his father died by suicide when Casey was 20 years old. In 2008, Casey's 24-year-old son, Jimmy, a rising star and professional writer, was accidentally struck and killed by a car walking home from a party. Three months later, Casey was reconnected with his father and son by means that he can only be described as miraculous. He wrote and shared that story, The Letter, later made into an award-winning short film, and thus began his second and most rewarding career as a writer and companion to others in grief. In 2013, Casey co-founded a group of fathers in San Diego who have lost children. They call themselves the fraternity and have grown to over 25 brothers that meet regularly. Casey and Jimmy published their first book in 2015, Suffering is the Only Honest Work. Jimmy contributed much of what was in the book, including the title, and more than earned posthumous credit as the book's co-author. Casey's new book, When the Veil Comes Down, was released on Amazon in March. Casey and Hillary, his wife and best friend of 47 years, live in Solana Beach, California. Their daughter, Brittany, son-in-law, Ryan, and their three grandchildren live close by. Casey, welcome, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, Jesse, thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and Casey, we had such a wonderful conversation when you and I first met. I'm excited for today, and I want to start with something in your bio that really stands out for me. And, and I know this from talking with you before, but I want you to invite you to share it with those who are watching and listening. I love, and I used to think sometimes I was the only one that did this. I will often refer to those who have passed away in the present tense, in much the way that you refer to Jimmy and him being a co-author and him being a contributor to the book, because I find what well, I found and I continue to find that they often have been and continue to be some of the most consistent and impactful life teachers in my life. And I will find myself on a regular basis speaking to them by name. And what I, what's incredibly fascinating to me, Casey, is it's, you know, the human, our, our capacity to hear is sometimes limited by our ears. And we become so reliant on our ears sometimes that we forget to listen with our heart. And it's when I can turn this off and stop tuning into trying to think it through of what I should be hearing and just really try to listen almost to what I might call the quiet whispers that you, you hear in your heart. It's amazing what comes through. So I, I just want to start with that. You know, have you always, since, since Jimmy passed away, have you always looked at him as, as still a presence or was it something that you, you've grown into? Was there an experience that happened that made you aware that he was still a presence in your life? B, uh, BJ, uh, that's what I referred to before Jimmy died. Um, uh, I, I would have referred to anybody who passed away in, in the past tense. You know, he was, uh, he did, um, he's, he's gone um, and he's not coming back. Um, but um, very shortly after, after Jimmy passed, um, in August of 2008, uh, he uh, worked very hard to make his presence known and that he had not really gone anywhere 
other than just um, out of body. And um, in our first book, um, Suffering is the Only Honest Work, we really focus on um, that revelation that, um, that uh, death does not touch love. Um, uh, love is, is always present. Our loved ones who transition are always accessible to us and we to them. And um, I think I shared, Jesse, with you when we spoke, um, the first experience I had um, uh, was the second morning after our son was killed. Uh, he was uh, accidentally struck and killed by an automobile walking home from a party uh, early in, in the morning. Um, he had had too many beers and he was too drunk to drive, so he decided to walk. Um, which uh, uh, unfortunately was uh, put him in the wrong place at the right time, um, at the wrong time. So, but the, the second morning, uh, it was early, it was probably five in the morning. And um, I was either having a lucid dream or I was awake. My wife was sleeping next to me. And I looked at the foot of my bed and there was Jimmy. Uh, smiling at me. Um, and he then proceeded to uh, lie on top of me. And his, I felt him go into my body, like sink in. Um, and I had this most incredible feeling of ecstasy and love that I'd never experienced before. And so that was my first, my first indication, if you will, that that he's he's not only with me, he's in me. Um, and um, much of what I write about in in suffering is the only honest work. And then the second book is giving props to Jimmy because Jimmy was the professional writer. He was an extraordinary writer. Not. You know, I wrote long contracts as a lawyer and nasty letters to, you know, to adversaries. <laughs> Real um, uplifting stuff. But I was not a, I wasn't a creative writer <laughs> at all. Um, but, uh, but Jimmy was, and uh, it became very clear to me early on. And I say early on within the first six months of his passing that what he had done is he had basically handed his pen to me and he said, look, uh, a lot of things are going to be happening to you and to you, to our family. Um, and your job is to just write them down and share them. These things are not just for you. They are for everybody. So um, that's, you know, that's kind of the deal we made. I said, all right, you know, you do your work uh, and show me things, show us things. I'll write and share them uh, as broadly and as widely as I can. And that's what basically got me into, um, you know, into this second career of, of being an author and writer and, and companion to others in grief because of everything that Jimmy and my dad uh, worked and have worked so hard to show us. Um, um, and uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, almost 13 years of that now. Casey, you 
<clears throat> what do you think it was or what do you feel it was that allowed you to, and you can choose, choose the verbiage here, but to receive or to experience that first visit from Jimmy. And I ask this because, gosh, I cannot tell you how many hundreds of people I've talked to over the years after loss. And it's some have very clear experiences. I've shared with you a couple of mine I've had and others mm -hmm. and others. Incredible others, ones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just sure. mind-blowing, yeah, right. Mind-blowing. And others don't. And and I, I'm trying, I always am wondering, well, what is it? Is it is it a state that they're in? Is there a is there an openness or is there a closeness? Is there a is there something that blinds or blocks certain people from it? I, I just and I don't know if maybe you've you've observed this at all, or in some of the men that you you mentor, if you've heard recurring themes pop up that seems like, well, was there anything in common with you and other people who were able to experience these messages and others want because and this is a this is a long, you know, and to this question. But I've talked to people who are who are mediums and specifically mediumship for people who have passed and people who are still physically alive. And the two or three I have spoken to have said something similar about being in a state of receptivity, being open to receiving these messages. And I so logically understand that. But emotionally, in those early days, especially when you're so deep into the throes of grief and despair and sadness, you know, do you, are you finding common themes? Because I think that what's so remarkable in your story is that it was 48 hours and you were able to go in that moment from being a grieving parent to having this overwhelming sense of feeling love and connected to your son. And I think that is, that's just it's such an inspiring thing to hear. So I'm just curious, have you, have you seen or observed themes from people who are able to have these experiences and others who might not have had them? Yes, I have. Um, and um, one of the, uh, uh, one of the stories that is in the second book, uh, when the veil comes down, we, we well, actually, there's several stories uh, of other parents who have had similar uh, close encounters with uh, with their loved ones who have transitioned. One uh, one of the stories uh, is about Patty Reese, uh, a woman from Bakersfield, who. Um, two of her children, adult children, one was a Top Gun pilot and one was uh, a recent graduate of UCSD. They were both murdered uh, by her son's roommate in Coronado um, uh, in a New Year's Eve party. And um, then the, you know, the, the shooter then ended up taking his, his own life. It was national news. It was just a horrible, horrible story. And I remember reading about it it took place about four years after uh, we lost Jimmy and, you know, I kind of made a mental note, you know, at one point, I hope I can get a chance to meet with this woman. And I, I did. And she told me the story. It was about, we actually connected about four years later. Somebody had given her our first book, Suffering is the Only Honest Work. She read it and she, I think, felt uh, a, I'm a kindred spirit. And so we, uh, 
we got together and she told me the story about shortly after her, uh, her two kids were murdered, her son came through to her um, about a week after uh, he was killed. Uh, he came into her bedroom, her husband's asleep, uh, stands at the foot of his, her bed and says, hi, mom, um, you want to talk? Uh, she goes, yeah. She gets out of bed and they go outside on the patio and they talk for two hours. This is not a dream. This is, they are, a, she is a wide awake and she's talking to her son on the patio. He came four nights in a row. Um, now, others have not had that experience. Um, and Jesse, I don't, I don't really know what it is, why some do and why some don't. What I felt, um, and I write about this in, in, in When the Veil Comes Down, uh, there's a chapter called uh, Priests, Shamans, and Quantum Theory. Um, yeah, I know it's strange, but um, uh, you got to bear with me when you, when you read it. But um, when we got word, when the, when the, the sheriff and the medical examiner uh, official came to our front door um, a few hours after Jimmy died to let us know, I physically felt a piece of me was ripped out. I mean, ripped out. Um, it was like somebody gut punched me, reached in, grabbed something, and just pulled it out. Um, and for a long time, I'd say for a couple of years, well, not a couple of years, maybe a year, I thought, well, that's just what happens that, um, you know, you... Uh, You've been uh, you've been wounded, severely wounded, and um, and you will never never heal that wound. It's just a it's just a gaping hole. But what I came to realize is no, what happened is, and and what does happen is when we lose somebody we deeply love, uh, a part of us is ripped out, but it's not ripped. It's taken and it goes with them. And that is what provides the bridge that connects us with them forever. It's, it's the bridge where they can come to us and we can go to them. Now, I think, Jesse, what the, you know, where, where, where there's differentiation among experiences is, um, are you willing to take a walk and a step on that bridge? Um, and are you willing to acknowledge when they step on that bridge and come over, uh, are you willing to acknowledge it and accept it? Or are you just going to do this? Yeah. And some just, they, they, we're so, so many of us are so hardwired to just believe that when someone dies, um, they go somewhere, heaven, hell, uh, but they're, they're, they're gone from here. And there is a separation that exists between here and there that we won't be able to cross until we die. You know, that's what we're taught. When, you, when we die, then we go to heaven and we're reunited 
you know, with God and uh, with Jesus and, you know, with our loved ones. But until then, sorry. But that is, that, that's just not true. Um, that's not how it works. Uh, based on all, all the experiences that we've had and so many of my other fraternity brothers and sorority sisters-in-laws have had. Uh, so I think what, what's important is to be open to it. Now, my son and I had a very close relationship um, and he was always so grateful to me for giving him the freedom to do what he wanted to do. I never said, you got to go to, why don't you go to law school or graduate business school and make money? And, you know, uh, I always, always allowed him to pursue his creative um, ambitions and desires. And, and he was very grateful for that. And so I think, you know, because of that relationship, uh, he felt very confident uh, coming across that bridge and, um, and, and testing me, basically, and, and showing me, hey, it's not over. It's not over. We got work to do. Casey, I got goosebumps when you, when you said about us being willing to step onto that bridge. And it made me consider the limitations of our belief systems, right? There's so much right. of us are operating in a way that we have been taught to think, feel, act, and believe. So much so that when things come up or they go on, even if it's staring us right in the face, we will often dismiss it because it doesn't, it doesn't line up with what we've been taught to think, feel, act, and believe. And maybe that really is, is it is, it's the exploration to an openness of beliefs because we really are, you know, I think one thing is for certain is no, none of us really know who are here have an absolute certainty of clarity of what's on that other side. And so it's yeah. ultimate, it's the ultimate exercise in trust. And I think trust is such a curious thing, right? Because it's, it's trust is one of those things that we, we will say that we all want that we will give away blindly, but then we will often hold ransom from the, some of the people who are closest to us because of our own fear of our own vulnerability. I don't want to trust you fully because you have an attachment to my heart. You could hurt me. Yet we will get onto an airplane. We don't interview the pilot, ask them how they're doing, if they're okay, <laughs> what's their headspace. We trust them blindly with our life and think that they're going to fly us from point A to point B. Okay. Or yeah. you and you and I both live in Southern California. We know what an exercise of trust it is to jump in onto the 405 or the 5 freeway. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, it, you know, what you said, it, it just it resonates so deeply is that opportunity to trust in something beyond the realm of what, our, what the limitations of our belief system is. Trust in something greater than what we were taught that may or may not be outdated and you know, out of date and unupgraded software from 20, 30, 40, 50, however many years ago it was. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the first experience you know, that I had with my son, um, again, it was so early, I, I, I didn't know what it was, I, you know, I didn't know completely what it was or, under, or understand it. Um, um, and 
you know, I was, I had been so terrible with grief and loss. Um, after my father died by suicide when I was 20 years old um, in 1970, um, the way I dealt with his loss was to do everything I could to forget him. I buried his memory. I wanted nothing to do with him. I was angry with him. I was disappointed in him. I was afraid of what he had done uh, and, and what it did to, our, to my family. And I, you know, this, this guy was a, a war hero. He was a, a successful businessman. He was the strongest guy I knew. And he, he made that choice. And so I, I just could, I couldn't deal with it. And my family and my mother in particular was very supportive of that um, uh, approach. You know, we didn't talk about his death. We didn't talk about him. We buried him in our minds. So when, when our son was killed, uh, not only did I have to deal with his death, but now my father's death came front and center because I had repressed it for so long. And so the, the really the defining moment in my my beginning to change my awareness, uh, sort of my, my real beginning of a glimpse of something bigger is going on, what was occurred three months after Jimmy died. And uh, I'll, uh, the, the, we tell the story in, uh, in both books, actually. Uh, it's the story of the letter. But very briefly, what happened is I got a call in my law office three months after Jimmy died. And it was a woman from West Virginia. Um, and she called to say, you know, you left something behind in Colwood, West Virginia when you were spending that summer here in 1968, and I want to return it to you. I go, what the hell is she talking about? Um, you know, that's 40 years ago, 40 years ago, and she's calling me right now. Well, um, I did spend the summer working on a construction project in Colwood, West Virginia when I was 18, just graduated from high school. It's from my my grandfather and father's construction company had a project there. And what she found was a letter that my father had written to me that summer, um, a letter that I never saw before. I had never received it. I, because when she starts talking about the letter, I go, I have no idea what she, you're talking about. She sends me the letter. She, uh, this woman knows nothing about what happened to my dad, knows nothing about what happened to Jimmy. I tell her uh, about Jimmy on the, our phone call. She sends me the letter. I get it on a Saturday. I'm, I'm reading it. It's a two-page letter, beautiful letter. He's confessing to me about how he had suffered depression in his childhood, how he couldn't deal with his rel religious fanatical mother, how the World War II, where he spent two years fighting in the South Pacific, changed him. It's like he's speaking to me man to man, just telling me about you know, his misgivings for his own life, but then filling me with all of this fatherly advice about how I can be anything I want to be. He's got nothing but the greatest hopes for me, and he knows I could be anything I want to be, and it's just beautiful, and I, as I'm reading it, I know I've never seen this letter before. I would never forget it, and I would never leave it behind. I mean, I'd lock this in a, you know, in a vault uh, with armed guards, so, and he ends the letter with this. I'll be around 
anytime you want me, I'll be there because I care more than you'll ever know. My son, all love, dad. That letter arrived in my hands on that Saturday, which was our son Jimmy's 25th birthday. The letter arrived on his birthday. My dad knew that was gonna be one of the hardest days of my life. And he was there with me. He showed up for me as he promised he would 40 years earlier. Boom. I mean, I just said, oh my God. I don't, I have, <laughs> I thought I might know what's, you know, what's, what's going on out there, what's bigger. I had no clue that, you know, something like that could ever happen. And there's, you know, coincidence, no way, no way. Um, and that was the first message to me that told me, told my family, look, we're here, we're watching over you. Uh, and my dad was telling me, you, th you thought our relationship was broken. You thought I didn't love you anymore by the choice I made but I've always loved you. And I've always been looking out for you and your son. And I am always there for you. And Jimmy is always there for you. Um, just accept it, embrace it, cherish it and share it. And that's, that Jesse was, the door opener for me and my family. That, that's what said, okay, all right. I got the big kick in the pants. I, 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 will, I will stay open. I will, I will open myself as much as I can to any, anything and everything you wanna share with me. And I will in turn share it with as many as I can. Um, and, that, and that's the, the path that, that we've been on since. When I when I hear you tell that story, Casey, and this is now the second time you've shared it with me, it's funny. I I I, I just flash back to gosh, it must have been two thousand eight, two thousand nine, where I first had the realization that there really just aren't coincidences when you when you talk about these things. It's just like a coincidence implies the implication of it is almost this math-defying luck or whatever it is. It's just the math doesn't work, especially for the, the significance of the coincidences that some of us have. And so as you're talking, the image that came to mind was almost that image of, if you'll recall the first, what was the movie? Is it Clash of the Titans? There's that scene where Perseus is out trying to go on the quest and they have Zeus and the other gods up on Olympus and they have almost a chessboard. Mm -hmm in front of them and they're moving the pieces around and it and the reason that came up is because it really to me it comes back to this whole idea of, of us being divinely guided in some way that there is something going on there is something so much greater than than we can imagine and it's it's almost in our 
you know, maybe our ignorance that we might dismiss some of these things as coincidences to think that we may have a better understanding of the laws of nature or depending on your belief systems, the will of God, spirit, universe, whatever that is, better than the law of nature or the will of God, spirit, and universe does. And, right. you know, the more I hear stories like yours, the more I hear stories like this from other people, the less I'm surprised, but the more deep I feel it. And, and it just, I think that, you know, humans, we're in this really interesting time right now where it is, it is maybe one of the first times in human history where we really have the opportunity to pursue the answers to some of these questions, to really pursue the elevation of consciousness because we've arrived at a place in human history, especially for those of us who are blessed to live in the first world, where survival needs are met in so many ways. Right. And, and with survival needs being met, it, it gives us the opportunity to evolve and pursue meeting the needs of spirit in a bigger way, to look at these, these questions about life and life after death and really start to understand things in ways that were so convenient to dismiss before. And I, I want to shift that to, you had mentioned your first career was as an attorney, and then you found your second career now as a grief counselor. And this has been the more rewarding and fulfilling one for you. Talk to us about your, your fraternity, the, the brotherhood that you formed. And you had mentioned something when we had first started chatting before we started recording about people have mentioned, said to you that doesn't that seem sad or isn't it depressing being around with a bunch of guys and going through this? And you were telling me it's actually quite the opposite. You guys laugh, you celebrate life, you you rejoice and you find comfort and companionship in one another. Talk to us a little bit about that. What, what inspired you to start the fraternity? What are, and how has the fraternity bonded and grown and support one another through their various losses? Well, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, we, uh, uh, the, the fraternity uh, sort of, came together in, in 2013, it was five years after, after Jimmy died, but actually uh, it was inspired um, the day after Jimmy died when I got a call from uh, an attorney colleague of mine who uh, had uh, his 18 uh, uh, year old son had been uh, killed in an automobile accident in 2001, seven years earlier. And he called to tell me how sorry he was uh, about Jimmy. And then he said, um, and, and uh, I'm also sorry that you've just joined the shittiest fraternity there is. And you have no idea how hard it's gonna be, but I do. And that's why I'm gonna be checking in on you every two to three months to see how, you, see how you're doing. And he did. Um, two years later, um, uh, on August 9, 2010, the same day Jimmy died, but two years later, I read in the paper about uh, 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 a young woman, 18 years old, uh, who was killed in a horrible car accident along with four others. Um, and she was a local girl. Uh, and I didn't know the parents, but um, you know, I, I knew where she went to high school and all of that. And I made, you know, I, I made a note to myself, I need to reach out to this guy. Um, but again, I, I, I didn't. I was two years into it, but um, 
you know, everybody goes through their own, uh, kind of their own um, oh, levels of, of healing. Um, and I wasn't ready to, to reach out to that guy. Um, but uh, the guy who called me the day after Jimmy uh, died, he did. He cold called the guy. And he went and he, and he calls me the next day and said, yeah, I just had coffee with Greg. And, uh, you know, we need to get together. Um, uh, I tell the story in, in, uh, uh, in, in the first book, Suffering is the Only Honest Work, uh, of how we ultimately did come together three years later. It was, uh, I, I received several kicks in the pants from Jimmy through multiple synchronicities that he organized. And I finally said, okay, let's do it. Um, and uh, we, the three of us got together um, um, at a, a restaurant at uh, Torrey Pines Lodge in San, in San Diego, uh, right next to the Torrey Pines Golf Course where they just had the US Open. And um, so that was our first meeting. And each of us realized um, that we have a tattoo uh, that is in our child's handwriting. Um, and so we spent, you know, uh, a, a part of that meeting just showing off our tattoos. Uh, I actually did not take off my shirt to so, show the tattoo I have on my back uh, because we're in a nice, you know, a nice restaurant. Uh, but I have uh, the title of the poem that Jimmy wrote after running the Los Angeles Marathon in 2007. Uh, the, the poem is titled Suffering is the Only Honest Work. That's the title of our first book. He wrote the title uh, in his own handwriting and he signed it, Jimmy. The rest of the poem was typed, but that's the, the, the title of the poem uh, is on my back in his handwriting. So um, from there, we slowly began to, um, to reach out and add more fathers. And, um, you know, I knew somebody else and, uh, uh, but I want to interject something. Somebody, uh, a friend of mine at the, the gym I work out at, and I was working out at all the time, asked me um, uh, oh, a few years ago, he's, and he said, you know, and this guy uh, had a friend who had just lost a son to an accidental drug overdose. And he, and, and he was asking me really on behalf of his friend, he said, Casey, when did you feel like you made a turn with your healing journey? And I quickly replied, I said, you know, it was when I got to the point where I felt I could begin to help others. And I wasn't just all consumed with, with my own well-being and my family's well-being but and healing, but I, I, I reached a point where now I can help others and I'm, I'm comfortable sitting down with others one-on-one -on -one or in groups and sharing what we've learned and, and some of these experiences that we've, that we've had. And so that was five years. Um, and, uh, but I think what's, what's neat about the fraternity, uh, not neat, but what's important about it is that uh, we have now grown to about 20 dads and we meet, uh, uh, you know, every three months or so. In fact, I was telling Jesse before that uh, we just had our first face-to-face -face meeting um, in over 15 months after COVID. And uh, about 10, 10 of the dads showed up and several of the dads were very new on the journey. Uh, you know, they have lost a child within the last uh, year or so. And there is nothing more important, um, I think, 
for um, anyone who, who's lost somebody they deeply love uh, than being able to talk about it and having a space and a safe place where they can talk about it and share their experiences, not only the story of what happened and what they went through, um, you know, be it no matter how the child was, 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 was lost or, or, or died, drug overdose, accident, uh, suicide. Uh, uh, you know, we like to say in the fraternity, there's no better way to die. Um, you know, the fact is that they died. And now we are, you know, now we're gathered here to deal with that. Um, but for these new dads to be able to look at some of us who are further down the road and see that not only have we survived, but we have thrived and we have taken and transformed ourselves and used that, that uh, to reshape our lives and get to a point where we now are helping others. And for these new dads to be able to see that gives them hope, uh, inspiration, and, um, um, and ultimately happiness uh, because they, they, they realize this is possible. Um, and I was, you know, initially, you know, after Jimmy died, I shunned any group activity or most, most of it. But this, this, this works, you know, this works for me. And it really works for the other dads. And, you know, everybody was just ecstatic to get back together, you know, after being so long uh, apart from a face-to-face -face, uh, meeting. And, um, you know, uh, I read a, uh, an article the other, recently the other day, and, um, you know, the, the title of, what, of it was, Can Grief and Joy Coexist? And the answer is yes, they can. Uh, and it's okay that they do. Do not feel guilty that you are experiencing joy uh, at the same time you are grieving the loss of your loved one. They want you to experience joy. That is part of, that's, that's how they, that helps them. And that's one of the things that, you know, we talk about in our fraternity is that, you know, uh, we, we tend to think that the, the healing comes one way from them. They send us signs. They send us messages like the letter and, you know, visits and appearances and things like that. But don't forget that healing works both ways. We can help them over there. And that's one thing I learned with my dad is that I was able to help him with his healing by number one, acknowledging and sharing what he was doing for me and my family, but then also um, writing his story, sharing his story, bringing him back to life in our family where we are now openly talking about him and celebrating him and honoring him. And I have gotten several messages from him that said, thank you, you helped me heal. You gave me my heart back. And for us to be able to, as you, Jesse, as you were talking about, you know, our mind is expanding, our, 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 our realization that there is 
an opportunity to really get some answers and to get closer to whatever it is that's going on around us. I deeply believe that 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 one of the ways or one of the pathways to that is to help others with their healing here and also to mend and repair and strengthen our relationships with those that you know have transitioned and you know by doing that we are bringing everybody closer together we are you know we're 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 knocking down these walls that we you know erected in our minds that that there's this separation no um, and, and the more work we do, I, I call it, if we can develop a critical mass of people where we are consciously and affirmatively working so hard to help others heal on both sides of the veil, uh, we'll get closer to, uh, to some more awareness of what's, of what's happening. I love that. Casey, we're coming up on our time. Before I ask my final question, where can people connect with you online? Um, there's uh, a couple places. So we've got our, our website is writemesomethingbeautiful.com. Writemesomethingbeautiful.com. Uh, you can also email me at Casey.gaunt with two T's, uh, number one at gmail.com. And then if you go to Casey.gaunt.com, you will uh, get an ax I get a link to uh, uh, the homepage for our new book, When the Veil Comes Down, which also has a link to uh, uh, Suffering is the Only Honest Work. And the other thing I'll mention is, uh, Jesse, when are you, you going to air this uh, podcast? I'll have to double check, but I believe it will be in the early fall. Okay. All right. So, um, uh, so Jesse is going to, um, um, when, when this podcast airs, what I will do, and I'll coordinate with Jesse, we will get um, uh, a free link to, uh, on Kindle uh, to either Suffering is the Only Honest Work or When the Veil Comes Down. And so uh, I'll coordinate with that with Jesse. And so when the podcast does air, air um, uh, one of those books will be uh, free on Kindle. Thank you, for Casey. probably five days. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'll have read both of your books by then too, by the time this is out. So I appreciate that. Casey, we have about 30 seconds left. And I'm going to ask you to speak to a specific someone as we wrap up. There's someone watching or listening right now. And they are, you know, they're kind of in the thick of it. They're struggling. They're, they're in the throes of grief, the pits of despair. But they still have, they, they have hope, you know, having heard your conversation, having heard what you shared, listening to your stories, they have hope that not just tomorrow, but the next moment can be better, that there's, there's life for them beyond loss. You said it so perfectly earlier when you said not just surviving, but thriving. And they have that hope that they too can, can thrive. So in the last 30 seconds we have, I would just love for you to speak directly to that person. I have a feeling that you have something to share that they need to, they need to hear right now. I'll leverage off of your TED Talk, Jesse, and, and the title of that is uh, uh, Grief Does Not Have to Be a Life Sentence. Um, in fact, 
um, losing somebody that we deeply love um, can be an absolute pardon um, where you are released from jail and you are, uh, you are given an opportunity to start a new life. Um, one that is filled with wonder, amazement, joy, hope, um, and incredible uh, awareness that we are not alone. Uh, we are not separated from our loved ones. Our loved ones are right with us at, at all times, um, and we with them. And all you have to do is just open your heart to it and let, that, let them in. And when they do come in, acknowledge it, embrace it, and share it. Share it with others. That is how we, 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 we embrace and honor what they're doing for us. And we are doing what they want us to do is to use this to help others. And by doing that, uh, what I've found, it's, it's, it's automatic. The more, the more we get and the more we give, the more we receive. And just trust it and you won't be disappointed. Everyone, this is going to be one you're going to rewatch and re-listen to and then dive deeply into Casey's world. He shares so transparently, openly, and honestly. He's has two books out there for us to consume. And I am making a pledge that I've read them both by for the in, before this interview publishes. But this was such a beautiful conversation about not just loss, but really about love, about love that exists in life and love that exists beyond loss if we're open to the love. Casey started off with sharing the beautiful story of his, of his son visiting him two days after his passing and the immense amount of ecstasy and love he felt. Because as Casey had said, a part of him left with his son, but then when his son returned, a part of him was now with Casey. You know, it, it begs the question for all of us to consider what parts of our loved ones have we held on to. Oftentimes, we may be able to see those pieces because we are so consumed by grief and guilt and all the emotions that come with loss. But if we allow ourselves, we allow our hearts to start to open to those other pieces. You know, we, we talked earlier about not listening with your ears, but listening more with your heart, listening to the whispers, looking for the signs, having an openness. We, just, we discussed the limitations of our belief systems in case he talked about that bridge and our willingness to step onto the bridge. And it's oftentimes what obscures us from really being able to connect and learn from the loved ones is our unwillingness to step on the bridge because we're handicapped and imprisoned by past belief systems. We're imprisoned by what we're told we're supposed to think and how we're told we're supposed to feel, which leads to the closing of this in case he beautifully suggested that loss can be looked at as a pardon. You know, it's a pardon for so many of us. I think we suffer through life because we don't appreciate what we have or we miss out on some of the moments or we're so caught in the rat race of what we think we need to do or we have to do. And I think Casey, you can probably attest to this too. I know for me, one of the most important lessons loss has taught me is it's taught me to be present in the moment, to appreciate what I have, to savor things a little bit more, to slow down, to, to realize that nothing is promised beyond right now and to really learn to treasure and embrace these moments. And if that could be the pardon that all of us get from loss, the opportunity to be more present, the opportunity to love a little deeper, to forgive a little quicker and to 
savor the moments with the people that we have, whether they're physically here or not. My goodness, what a, what a second shot at life that would be for all of us. Casey, thank you so much for sharing so generously and so openly and so lovingly today. I deeply appreciate you and I am looking forward to the day where we can connect in person and we can talk about life, love, and loss <laughs> the night. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Jesse. I really appreciate being on your podcast and thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing. Absolutely. We will see you next time, everybody, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to